Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is James Sale. He's the creator of a fabulous tool called Motivational Maps. He's an author, a poet, and a feature writer for the Epoch Times. James, welcome. Well, thank you very much, uh, Marcus, for inviting me. I feel it's a privilege to come on your show. It's got an illustrious history and past to it, so I hope I can contribute something to it in the present now. I'm pretty sure you will. James, would you mind giving 60 seconds on your background and how you got to where you are now? Yes, I was a teacher for 15 years. I resigned as a teacher, as a deputy headmaster of a large secondary comprehensive school in Dorset in 1995. I was fed up with the bureaucracy of teaching and education, and I set up my own business. And since then, I've been a management consultant, trainer, and latterly coach for 25 years. But in 2006, I created Motivational Maps, set up the business around this with my wife, Linda, And for the last 15 years, we have been managing and running the business of Motivational Maps, which has got over 800 licensees in 15 countries. Excellent. And I am one of those licensees. So um, I'm I'm finding it incredibly useful as a tool to work with existing salespeople and management, but also in the recruitment process. I'm finding it very interesting to understand people's motivation. But would, would you mind giving us a couple of minutes on what motivation is, first of all, and what it isn't. Okay, well, motivation really is the third part of the formula which is linked to performance. So we all want to perform. We're taught to perform as children. We grow up in school, we have to perform. We get a job, we have to perform. We run a business, we have to perform. Performance is absolutely at the root of who we are as human beings. Motivation is the third component of it. So think of a car. A car has to get you from A to B. Performance has to get you from A to B. To get from A to B, you need a direction, which is the steering wheel. So you have a steering wheel. You have to go in the right direction to get to B. You have the car itself, the chassis and the engine, which is a fine-tuned, highly wrought piece of work, the skills, the knowledge, the competencies. But this car is still not going to get you from A to B, even with the right direction, even with all the skills and knowledge in the world, unless it's got fuel in the tank. The fuel in the tank, the gas, if you want to call it that, is the energy with which we approach everything we do. And without energy, so motivation essentially is energy. We can have all the strategies in the world, we can have all the skills and knowledge in the world, but if we haven't got the energy, the internal energy that drives us, we, our team, our business, our organization are going nowhere. So essentially, motivation is the internal energy that we bring to, you know, what we do. Okay, so if we look at the different types of motivation, in the motivational maps, we have relationship motivators, achievement motivators, and growth motivators. Um, Do you mind just summarizing what those three components uh, mean in terms of fueling behavior and performance? Yes, what they're actually linked to, and this is a very big question, so I'm going to try to be brief about this, and I probably will miss some stuff out, but the essence of it from my perspective is that the universe, the cosmos, is constructed in units of three. Everything has got three. So there are three dimensions of space. There are three dimensions of matter, liquid, solid, gas. And lo and behold, we find there are three dimensions of time. Incidentally, if we got theological, there tends to be three dimensions of gods as well, but we'll leave that aside for now. 
So basically, there are three. These dimensions of time, which are critically important, are the past, the present, and the future. So our reality is circumscribed by these past, present, and future. The three motivators that you mentioned are the relationship motivators tend to be what we feel in our past. So some people are very, very influenced by their past, by their feeling state, more than any other of the other two. The achievement motivators are what we're doing now in the present. These are what we think about all the time. How can I make money? How can I get control? How can I develop expertise? So this is very present tense. But of course, our ideal self of our self-concept is about you know, what we are becoming, who we are going to be, our growth. We can't stay where we are. We can't be a baby forever. We can't be an adolescent forever. We have to become something that we never thought we were going to be. So the growth motivators are those that propel us into the future. Now, the ideal human being would have these in perfect balance, but sadly, <laughs> we live in the real world and nobody is an ideal human being. So some people are weighted towards their past some are weighted towards their present, and some are weighted to their future, and some even a mix. But the thing about this, none of these types are good or bad in themselves. They are all relevant in the context in which we find it. So for example, past-orientated, relationship-orientated motivators tend to be very risk-averse, but they also tend to be very security-conscious. So if you think about a job like, say, for example, flying an aeroplane or doing brain surgery, do you want somebody who's doing the flying or doing the operation to be risk-friendly? Oh, I think I'll experiment while I'm doing this procedure. No. So depending on the context, each of the motivators has a glowing moment of glory. And in another context, that same motivator could be an extremely negative thing for the team or the organization. So from what I'm reading from what you've said, motivation comes from within. Yes. It's not something that can be done to other people. So you might be able to encourage uh, those motivations to drive certain behavior and performance. Can I use um, a stronger word? Yeah. Encourage is a good word, but I'm going to use it. What managers need to do, leaders need to do, what we all need to do with each other is we need to feed the motivators. Now, we need to feed the motivators. So we are responsible for other people's motivations in an absolute sense, and you are absolutely right in suggesting you can only motivate yourself, but other people can feed it. And to use the most extreme example of this, if we go back to childhood, you know, we all know whether or not our parents fed our motivators or tried to coerce us into doing things that really weren't for us. In my own case, for example, my mother was obsessed by my becoming a scientist like her brother, which was, in fact, the wrong motivator. I didn't want to become a scientist. I ended up with A-levels in pure maths, applied maths, and physics. But in fact, it was completely going down the wrong career path for me. So I had years of somebody trying to get me to do something, which, in fact, was demotivating to me, not actually aligning with what was inside me. This then points to something that I've really liked about using the motivational map. Because if we look at the reports, the reports tell us where our natural biases lean. However, behind that, there's a, a panel that looks at how well those motivations are being served. Now, mm. 
um, in the context of working with a team, when you see someone with high motivation in a specific area, but it's being poorly fed, what kind of conversations as a coach should we be having with the manager in order to ensure that the person in question is performing at their peak or maybe being moved into a role where they can satisfy those motivations? Well, this is a very profound question. You're absolutely right to draw attention to this. And I think one of the things we need to be very explicit about at this point with motivational maps is the following thing. One of the reasons why I created motivational maps was that after 10 years of working as a consultant, trainer, coach, and talking about motivation and talking about motivation in various contexts, I realized that, in fact, we were talking in a kind of vacuum, that there was not really a kind of what I call a language to describe it and a metric to measure it. So the beauty of the conversation with the manager is that we're not just saying, oh, this person needs motivation, so how can we do that? So we give them generic solutions to this. Oh, give them some praise, give them some recognition, the sort of standard thing you read in most books on motivation, these standard things, give them some more autonomy. I actually read it in one of the the most prestigious management magazines some while ago that the whole of British industry could be transformed if we gave everybody more autonomy. That is the most... Really? Yeah, that is the most preposterous idea from a map perspective, because, of course, the spirit motivators, those people who've got it in their top three, certainly would benefit from more autonomy. But there's a whole bunch of people with defender, friend, and other motivators which don't want autonomy. They want to be told what to do because it's more secure. So coming back to your question, the person who is managing this person and they can see this is an important motivator and it's currently not being satisfied the key thing we revert to at this point is we advise them vis-a-vis what we call reward strategies. We have a series of recommendations, and it's not prescriptive. It's actually everybody's got to decide for themselves what their company can do, what their company can afford, what is possible within their context and environment. But basically, each of the nine motivators has a series of things that can be done, ranging from the totally free, you just need to do it, to things which cost money to do, but nevertheless may be beneficial. And it's in that area of reward strategies, we say it's a targeted way of saying to that person, look, we can do this, and you're possibly going to like it, and they probably will like it. Whether you tell them you're doing it, or whether you actually do this because you've seen the map and you know what to do, and you just simply keep this, as it were, on the QT, and you just do it anyway, is another question. But essentially, you feed people what they want. If they want this, give it to them. And this is why this whole process is what we call a bottom-up approach. Instead of a top-down approach where manager says, well, we're going to give you this. These are your bonuses. These are yours. These are your extras for the year. These are your commissions. These are whatever we call these. What we're saying is actually, what's the profile? What is this person likely to want? Give them what they want, because that is in itself motivating, with the proviso that no specific action can guarantee that. But after having done nearly 80,000 maps, I can say to you, you know, the people who've taken this advice, you know, 99 times out of 100 find it works. There's always a negative person who refuses to be motivated. And you cannot, you cannot do that. In fact, the question when you find that person is, you need to get rid of them. 
Because if somebody won't be motivated, you've got a duty for their mental well-being to move them on because they're deeply, deeply unhappy where they are. Well, this points to something that many people shy away from, which is doing difficult work. This, to me, sounds like really difficult work. So what advice would you give to somebody who is willing to take the plunge and the thinking that needs to go into their preparation and planning before they start to create a compensation and reward structure that will be designed to drive the individuals to their peak performance? Well, that's a great, great question. And of course, what I could do is I could be a real cheapskate for you now and say to you, do you know what? Marcus. <laughs> well, no, well, no, I wouldn't say because I'm not for hire. I don't, I don't do this work anymore. But basically, today, as it happens, today, my uh, new book, Mapping Motivation for Top Performing Teams, has just been released by Routledge, which is full of just all this. I could say to you, read my book, but I'm not going to say. So uh, say give us a synopsis of the bit, uh, the, the bit on reward structures. Well, there's a whole chapter <laughs> on reward strategies, okay, in the book. Chapter two is all about reward strategies. But here's the thing, see, I would say as a generic piece of advice based on your question, we ask ourselves this question, what is the single most powerful learning tool that is known to human beings? What is the single most powerful thing that will accelerate learning in any circumstance? And the answer to that is this. It's an old Greek idea, comes from the Odyssey. It's becoming a mentor. Mentor was a character in the Odyssey. And when we mentor somebody, then we optimize. So if you're saying to yourself, how do I do this? Well, you know, you yourself are a mapper. You're a relatively recent one, but actually you've already got experience of using this. You've already, in the pre-conversation to this talk, told me about some of the learning that's occurred to you about how the map works in terms of what is going on in businesses. Now, we've got over 800 people doing this. We've got some very senior people doing this. We've got some absolute geniuses doing this. You know, attach yourself to one of these people and then allow them to guide you through this minefield because it will be a complete education for you. And so we've got some fabulous map communities, which it's not all about 800 solitary people out there doing their own thing. We have got communities, or one of them, for example, in the Cambridge area, I mean, I think he's got about 150 in the community. Coaches, HR people, managers, trainers, all of them focused on this and sharing their expertise. So I think joining a community... Uh, and having a mentor who can help you through the, the initial stage, at least for six months, you can't beat it. Such a powerful thing. So having a mentor, fantastic. In terms of the questions that we should ask ourselves, because I think if something's not working, the most logical place and the scariest place is to look in the mirror. How important yeah. is it for us to understand our own motivations so that we can recognize when we're allowing our own motivation to bias our opinion in terms of what will and what won't drive performance? Well, that's again a brilliant question. And in fact, you anticipate your own questions. You, you gave me some pre-questions to, to this uh, talk. And one of them was about blind spots to look for. What are the blind spots to look for? And I, I've, I've kind of mentally identified three for you. The first of which is the lowest motivator. Our own blind spot. In fact, for me personally, 
the reason why Motivational Maps Limited is such a kind of weird company, uh, it, it operates in a very non-standard way. It's got um, very, very sort of strong spirit motivator running through it in terms of the autonomy we allow people. But my own personal lowest motivator, which is a blind spot for me, is director. So I happen to know I should never really manage anything, which is is why my wife is the managing director of the company, because I actually, I've got the skill set to do it. I was a senior manager myself for, for seven years, but it bores me. It doesn't really float my boat. I don't really get, you know, I have to force myself to manage. So for me, the maps, I mean, obviously there are other tools you can use for other blind spots in yourself. But for me, the maps is so brilliant because I realize what I'm not likely to do in any situation with motivational maps is manage people. I don't want to do it. So to know that and keep it at the forefront of my mind is vitally important for me as I go forward because it means, and it's true of all the motivators, I need to work out how I compensate for this missing aspect of my performance. How do I compensate for this missing aspect of my own performance? Now, motivational maps itself, as it currently exists, is the answer to that. So I don't want to go into all the how we've done that. You know, my wife being the MD is a stage, is is part of that. But there's more than that about how we try to get over the fact that I don't want to be a manager. You know, for example... The very structure, the reason why we didn't make it a franchise, we made it a license. If it was a franchise, the amount of management involved in franchising is enormous. It would have driven me mad at franchising this, being in control of every, you know, ensuring every single burger we made was exactly the same through every single member of the community. Jesus, imagine the management responsibility for me doing that. So being a director, lowest motivator, then I preempted myself actually creating a franchise. So we created a license. And then my wife became the managing director to avoid me managing anybody because I don't want to do it. Okay. Does so that answer your question or not? I hope I've it, answered it. Ish. I really want to delve into uh, the reward strategies side of things because it, it it's such an important aspect of management and leadership. And I think most organizations, particularly in sales, have a tendency to have the one size fits all. They treat money as the key motivator. I mean, I'm a moderately successful salesman, but I'm utterly un- unmotivated by money. Money is merely a byproduct, as far as I'm concerned, of how well people think of the work that I do. And making money actually is easy. You find people who have a problem, you help them to solve it, and you get paid for it. But money doesn't thrill me. But the choices that I can make, the uh, the potential. So I, I've got four big, hairy-ass, audacious goals. Because, uh, again, one of the other things that's uh, has struck me, I've been a trainer for the last 17, 18 years. And I've uh, led teams. I've had to sell. And the thing that's always befuddled me is why people would bother to make smart goals, which are dull and uninspiring. I like dumb goals. Dumb goals are dream-based, they're uplifting, they're method-friendly, and they're behavior-driven. And the behaviors are smart. I look at so many organizations that have compensation schemes that are purely about money. They're all about hitting targets and quotas 
rather than focusing on the thing that actually matters to our customer, which is the outcome that they rent only for as long as we continue to deliver the outcomes they need at that time. Yes. Um, so no one buys your product. No one in the history of humanity has ever bought a motivational map. There's a reason behind it. And it's the why, 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 why. And if we don't understand that, then we're going to end up trying to sell them a commodity. We don't uh, sell motivational maps. Motivational maps are a feature. People absolutely. buy benefits. The benefits of the map, the fit, we never try to sell motivational maps. We sell the, you know, that's a feature. The benefits are performance, productivity, profitability, the three Ps. That's what we talk about. And I totally agree with you. We never try to sell motivational maps. And that is why it's not available in a retail form because we don't want to sell it in a retail form. It's a solution to a problem that somebody's got. And we call it wrapping the mapping. The map, we don't sell the map, we wrap the map in the solution. It could be a leadership solution, a team solution, a recruitment solution, a sales solution, but we wrap the map in these solutions. So I absolutely agree with you. But can I just say to this about the um, reward, the total rewards thing, actually one of the leading experts in the country on this is Professor Duncan Brown. With his permission, I've included his work in Chapter 2 of Reward Strategies, and I've superimposed on it a layer of it. Here is Duncan Brown's reward strategy, a complete reward strategies package and idea, and here is how this applies with a map overlay. So we have gone into this in some huge detail in the book. But I want to make one other point to you, which I think is really important about this, which is also in the book, and something you may or may not be aware of in terms of, you've mentioned this word rewards. You need to understand, or we all need to understand, that performance and reward go hand in glove. They are forever locked together. We are conditioned as children, as babies, to understand that if we're a good boy or a good girl, we get the reward. And if we're not a good boy or a good girl, and this is something we can never shake off. And here's the thing. According to the Pareto Principle, basically there are four rewards. It's 80-20, four to one. There are four types of performance and four types of reward plus zero. So if you have no performance, that's not a performance, it's zero, but it's kind of like we all understand what we mean by zero performance. So there are four types of performance. Now, if I was to put words to these four steps on the ladder, they would be there's poor performance, there's good performance, there's excellent performance, and then at the very top, there's outstanding performance. Now, to understand the thing about this, we need to say, well, there are four levels of reward as well. Poor rewards, well, zero rewards, poor rewards, good, excellent, outstanding. But here's the thing that people don't understand, which the book makes really clear. It's just, if you ask yourself the question, so if you perform good or well, to use the correct grammatical term, if you perform good, what rewards do you get? Or if you perform poor, what rewards do you get? If you're a poor performer, what rewards do you get? And every time I ask this question, I get the wrong answer. So I won't embarrass you by asking the question, just in case you, who are a very perspicacious person, Marcus, get the wrong answer. But people say, oh, you get poor re poor performance, you get poor rewards. No, you don't. You get zero rewards. You get zero rewards. And in fact, you probably get punished. Yeah, you probably get punished. You get good performance. You, go, you don't get good rewards. You get poor rewards. You do excellent performance. You don't get excellent rewards. You get only good. And by the way, good here means average, which means mediocre. You get, so excellent performance gets good rewards. And you can see a pattern here. You can see a pattern that the performance level is always accompanied by a reward at a lower level until you get to the top level. Because when you perform in an outstanding way, 
you get all the rewards. And the reason you do that is it's not there's a big difference between excellence and outstanding. It's because the word outstanding contains in its etymology exactly what you do. You stand out. The person who performs at an outstanding level not only is excellent in their performance, but they PR themselves and make sure that everyone knows about it. And so the outstandingness becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where the rewards are. So this is the winning edge philosophy. You might only win by a nose, but the winning horse actually gets the of the whole prize thing. So to understand that is a really important thing in terms of the distribution of rewards. And it's why people say, I've done a good job, but nobody recognizes it. Well, why would they? They're paying you to do. A good job means an average job. You're just doing what you're paid to do. Why would anyone, why would any MD notice you for doing a good job? So there's a whole psychology here of why, given I'm mentioning the fact that motivation is part of the performance mix, why this is so critical if you want to get outstanding rewards in life, why you have to up the level of your performance beyond what you think it needs to be. Okay. So if we're building outstanding teams, mm. what do we need to do in order to... Well, one of the things that I found very useful, and one of the tools I found very useful over the last 20 years is the Gallup Strengths Finder. Mm-hmm. And building teams whose strengths make people's the other people's weaknesses irrelevant. When you're building a team using motivational mapping, do you instinct or de- deliberately go out and look for people who have a mix of motivations so that their motivations make the other piece, uh, people's lower motivational scores irrelevant? Or are you looking for people with a particular bias in uh, one direction, or uh, you know, how, how do you oh. manage that? Oh, Marcus, I mean, I, I agreed to come on this show for free because you're a friend and a mapper. I mean, I should be charging you for this information. This is, I mean, this is asking me, like, you know, what's the meaning of life? 42. I mean, this is such a you know, wow, no, what a question. Got it wrong, it's 38. <laughs> well, okay, so I mean, I think you know, we have to start at the beginning. So before we start saying, well, what should the composition of the team be? And in fact, yes, there are people. And yes, the maps can be used essentially in the whole recruitment process. Uh, If you go to Lou Adler, the world's number one recruitment expert, there are four key criteria for why you would appoint somebody to a team. But the number one is energy, which is motivation. But to come back to the beginning, we have to ask ourselves, what is a team? And one of the things I like to say to people, when I, or I used to like to say to people when I went into companies, and I've been into hundreds of companies, when I'd, I'd go around and I'd see a factory or I'd go into the offices and people would introduce people in the team and I'd say, well, okay, can you tell me, please, are we a group here or are we a team? Are we a group or are we a team? And I'd always get that kind of, uh, what, what do you mean? Because I actually had no concept of what it meant to be a team in the first instance. Well, I said, are we a group or are we a team? And I keep repeating it. In fact, I kept repeating it because I want the leader of the team eventually to go around and say to other people, are we a group or are we a team? Now, a group of people is what we often call like, you know, like a sales team, just a group of people. A department, a group of people. A faculty, a group of people. Just a whole bunch of people have been put together because that's their job. You're in the admin department, you're in the sales department, you're in the operations department, you're in whatever department you are, and there's no team, it's just a group of people, like going into Woolworths as as it used to be, and there's a whole lot of staff there, none of them are coordinated, they just happen to work at Woolworths, they're not a team, they're a group. Now, a team 
has got four distinctive characteristics which we explore. The first of those is it's got a remit, a word I'm using over and above the word mission. Uh, mission's a good word, but uh, if you read my book, you'll see why it's not good enough. It has a remit. It has a purpose. It has something which is really absolutely critical. Three chapters are devoted to how motivation impacts on the remit of the mission. Okay. Then we have interdependency. Now, this is, again, another area where the maps are critical, where I have actually discovered teams where we have a lack of diversity in the motivational profile, which is, yeah. for example, and you've used this yourself, to suddenly find you've got a, a, a team with nobody, with director in their top three, who is leading this team? Or you find that the person who is leading the team has got director lowest and somebody who is lowly down in the hierarchy has got director and wants to lead the team because they've got director number one, but can't. So this kind of thing is where MAPS comes into its own. It's phenomenal. So the interdependency, but interdependency implies something else. It also asks this question. It says, well, have we got enough people in the team to perform or have we got too many? You see, there's all this, this kind of excess, really. It tends to be excess in teams. It tends to be too many people and they haven't got enough to do. And it's just not good. The third thing, very difficult to deal with, but I love this in particular, is belief. And there are two beliefs in particular which are really important. Do you believe in the power of teams to outperform individuals? People say they do, but they don't. You see, a group of people only can produce an arithmetical result. If there are five people in the team, the net productivity is one plus one plus one is five. But a team that believes in teams actually is one times two times three times four times five. The power of the team is absolutely phenomenal. Do we believe in it? One of the things the book does, it gives you an exercise that's in the public domain which can demonstrate this experientially, how teams, the NASA exercise, how teams outperform individuals. And it's, it's, it's demonstrable in a kind of mathematical way, strangely, uh, experiential and mathematical way. And the fourth thing is teams. I'm sorry, you said that there were two beliefs. So do you believe in the power of teams to outperform individuals? Yes, and of course, it's self-belief. You have to have self-belief and as self -belief. well. Okay. And self-belief as well. But the, the fourth thing is accountability. And this has got two aspects as well. The accountability of each individual to each other and the accountability to the whole organization to prevent siloing. How many companies have we been in <laughs> where <laughs> marketing and operations, you think they're having a war? Or sales and marketing. You know, it's yeah. kind of like, you know, instead of this kind of, you know, so an accountability to the whole organization is always the subordination of personal self-interest and ego to the bigger, higher purpose, the big why that you talked about earlier on. This is really interesting. In fact, only yesterday, um, I brought in my good pal, Anthony Willoughby, who has spent the last 45 years working with indigenous people in Papua New Guinea, in Kenya, right. and in Mongolia. And what's been really fascinating, because um, he's developed a process called territory mapping. And it came about when he was uh, living in Japan, he met the Papua New Guinean ambassador who became a friend of his. And he said, what's the most important thing to you? And he said, my territory. 
And he went on this quest for the last 45 years to help organizations to map out their territory. And what was really interesting was the exercise that we did uh, yesterday, um, which was to get everybody to draw their map of the territory that they thought they occupied. And the galvanization of the team of people who'd never worked together. I mean, there were a bunch of people I hadn't even spoken to before. And they were throwing themselves into this because mapping is incredibly powerful. Having a map allows everybody to see where they are, where they're headed. Uh, It allows uh, you to see what the threats and opportunities are, all in the space of one glance. Now, I think I'll, I'll team the two of you up I think for another podcast, if you're game. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm game for this. I think that would be really fascinating because bringing motivation into the whole piece of the mapping process and understanding the individual motivation and then looking at the interdependency and looking at how the individual self-belief can be bolstered and developed by working in a team. Because that's the thing that I've found working in in interdependent teams has really given me, is it's given me confidence in the areas that I am already strongest. And one of the lessons that I learned from using StrengthsFinder is that my strengths were my development areas. Putting me into a room and training me on Excel for three weeks means that I will still be shit at it after three weeks. Me too. Uh, Put me in a room where I'm uh, trying to work out Uh, the individual drivers of a prospect or selling or um, the psychology behind selling, not only will I learn it, but I'll be able to draw from thousands of other experiences. And then I'll be able to teach it within 24 hours and make it better. This is really fascinating. Oh, I'm so excited. I've got a little uh, shiver up my spine. (laughs) uh, The the few remaining hairs on the back of my neck have just... (laughs) Okay, so we touched on blind spots, and I really want to come back to that again. In the motivational maps, um, for those of you who have not used them, what we tend to do is we look at the top three motivators and the bottom one. And the bottom one is often your kryptonite, and it's where you will find blind spots. So let's talk about why it's important to understand the lowest motivator. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the word... Blind spot's a great word. Another word that I use is, is Achilles' heel. It's the Achilles' heel. It's the thing that you don't consider. And not only do you don't not consider it in terms of a blind spot for yourself, I think it's equally detrimental that you tend to discount it in other people. So we talk about team conflict. You know, Often it's referred to as a personality conflict within teams. Actually, what we've discovered is it's not, it's not always a personality conflict. It's more often a motivational conflict. In other words, our lowest motivator, and again, the scoring here is always important. So I'm making a general point, which some people have scores for their lowest motivator, which are quite high. So, you know, so it it doesn't affect them so much. But basically, when you get these low, lowest motivator, low score motivators, we tend to, so for example, I will always have a problem with the kind of person who's got a very high director motivator, because I will know they will be trying to control me. I don't like controlling myself, and I tend not to like people who are controlling. And that applies to every single motivator. For example, the next one up, the friend in the sequence is like, so if you've got a strong friend motivator, you want to belong. 
But you find somebody whose friend is their lowest motivator and they're not the slightest bit friendship, belonging, being a community at work, going for drinks on a Friday at lunchtime or after work. I don't want that kind of nonsense. What's that to me? Why are you bothering? I've got, I've got a life to live. I don't want to be part. You know, I mean, this is a kind of tension point. So when we think about the harmony within teams and, and the friction within teams, this blind spot is absolutely crucial. In fact, one could almost say it's as important as the highest motivator. It's the polarity, it's the opposite, but it has this inordinate effect on the outcomes with working with other people within a team. So absolutely, it cannot be overstressed how important studying the lowest is. And we say the lowest, but we need to keep in mind, sometimes in some people's profile, there's more than one lowest. It can actually be more than one thing. So it's very, very important to keep one's eye on what is happening at the bottom end of the motivational profile. Okay, so if we are aware of our scores, both high and low, and we understand the scores of those people around us, if we're leading a team, what do we need to be aware of when we're communicating to somebody whose scores are quite different to us, when we know that we need them in order to be a team rather than a group? Absolutely. The key thing to understand is, and to position it in this way, it's not, you know, it's not to be the boss and say, you're this, so that means that. It's to say, Marcus, you know, I've been looking at your team, your motivational map, and I see your profile is this. So it's this very factual, it's very factual, sort of very data-driven. I see that Searcher is your, your number one motivator and you love to make a difference. And I can see how that works out with the client. You always seem to go the extra mile. I can also see that, let's choose another motivator just for the sake of variety, but I can see, for example, that Expert is your lowest motivator. And uh, I'm wondering how you feel about that, about the training you've had in the last year or so, or the coaching you've had in the last year. Are you happy with that? Do you think there's anything that perhaps you would benefit from, uh, from having in the next six months or, or quarter or whatever the period of time is? But you actually get them to reflect on the result with you just putting in a kind of, well, what does this mean exactly for you? I mean, the key thing is the interpretation of the, the person doing the map, because as you pointed out at the very beginning, only they can motivate themselves. But you've got to give them the information which they can act on. Interesting. So if you find yourself in conflict because what you think is a personality clash, it strikes me that you should look at your own motivations you should understand the motivations of other people and then use that discrepancy between the two in order to be able to adjust your behavior yes. and then really focus your attention on feeding their motivation yes. so that you can neutralize the conflict, then find a way that you can work together better. Yes. The, la the motivational maths provides a language and a metric, which is like a bridge. A non-judgmental bridge, a non-you're-in-the-wrong-you're-not-doing-very-well kind of way of which we can describe this and bring them on board. And by the way, I've got to say, it just reminded me of saying, I just randomly mentioned the expert motivator being lowest, but I actually literally had an experience about 10 years ago in which I had an L&D director for a company who'd done a motivational map, and I'd been around the company, we were doing some work together, and when I got to know her a bit better, I didn't do this at the beginning, but I noticed an anomaly. 
I noticed I had a learning and development director of a company who had expert as their lowest motivator. <laughs> and when I got to know her better, I ventured this uh, perception to her. I said to her, you know, hmm, so I let me just guess here. Uh, I'll invent a name, Hannah. Let me just guess here, Hannah. You don't really go on a lot of training and development yourself, do you? And she says, actually, you're right. She says, I don't. I arrange all this training for everybody else, she says, but I don't really like going on training. <laughs> I said, but I'm just going to give you a warning now, just a little tip. If it carries on like you're carrying on, eventually you're going to have a problem with the staff. Why, she said. I says, because you're not walking the talk. You're advocating training and learning for, and coaching for everybody else, but people will notice you don't do it yourself. This is a perennial problem with management. They recommend things for other people, but they don't do it. In your case, it's core to your job. Learning is core to what you do. The expert motivator is core to what you do, but it's your lowest motivator. So you're not doing it. At the moment, you've been here two years, so it's not become a problem. You've got the skill set. You can set the training up. But eventually, five years down the line, people will think, well, she doesn't go on the training. Why should I go on the training? So it's kind of like, you know, it's just so revealing what maps can come up with. Well, one of the things that I'm curious to discover as well is what if a motivator is very high and it spikes into a strong, extremely strong motivator? Uh, what, what are the guidance that you'd give where someone has a very strong motivator that uh, outstrips all the others? Well, it's a bit like your strengths finder thing. In a way, there, there are two opposite answers to this question. The first answer is you have a very strong top motivator. It's a strength. So how can you deploy that even more effectively? How can you get more energy from it? How can you get more bangs from your bucks? Keeping in mind what the role is, it's always, it's always a context for this. But so in a way, a very strong motivator can be a really great thing and give you a single focus. We, we've heard a lot about this in the past, about the single focus. Of this, you know, Odd people become leaders because they've got a single focus. They're very odd. They're unbalanced, but their unbalanced becomes the very thing which gives them this power to get things done which works, of course, until it doesn't work. But the other side of the coin is this, is that we have a way in maps of what we call establishing whether the map is a false map or a true map. There are two or three techniques we have for establishing this, but perhaps the most obvious and easiest is a motivator which is so strong it's overwhelming. So, for example, as you probably know, the, the top score for a motivator is 40 out of 40. Whenever I get a 40 out of 40, I think that might be a false result. There is somebody projecting a self-image who wants to be seen. This, this value has become very important to their identity, and they've adopted it rather than it actually being a genuine motivator. I've come across this several times. It's not a frequent thing, but I've come across it three or four times in my 15-year career with the maps, and every time I've come across it, it's proved to be a false result. You don't say to somebody, by the way, you have tried to second-guess this test and you've filled in a fault and you've, you've, you've got a false result because it'd be quite rude to say that. But you question them. You question them. So, for example, if searcher is 40 out of 40, you would say something along the lines of, oh, I see that making a difference is really important to you. Can you tell me about how you're currently making a difference in what you're doing? And then you'll be able to judge whether or not that is really justified being 40 out of 40 and 10 out of 10 in terms of satisfaction rating. You'll know from the answer whether this is real or whether this is actually uh, PR hype. 
can't. Okay. One other thing I'd like to wrap up on is where one has a very high motivational score overall. So when I did mine, I had a 99% uh, motivation. Mm. And evidently, since I've started doing the maps, I've found two of my uh, clients who have 100%. Now, one of the things that my coach told me was that you need to make sure that you're not totally obsessive and uh, you're not sacrificing your family life or your health or whatever through this obsession. So again, talking about people who have that incredibly high motivation, incidentally, since I took the map, I've changed careers and my motivation's increased quite considerably. So I'm not sure the scale can possibly cope. No. It may need to do 150 or 200%. I'm curious, if you find someone who just loves what they do, how can you be a good friend and a coach to them to make sure that they uh, maintain some modicum of balance in their life? Well, I think there are two. I, I may be speaking about personal experience here. Well, I think that's very true. But I think there are two answers to this question, one very technical and one more general. The more general answer is that, of course, no matter how, even if you, I mean, I'm regularly 100% motivated because, in fact, I feed the three top motivators I have. Uh, yeah. They sometimes change a little bit. One drops out, one comes in. But the, I've got three core motivators, which I know are what float my boat. I feed them. And I don't get mixed up with management and all that stuff, which would demotivate me. So I know for a fact that I'm highly motivated. But so the thing about that is, you know, no matter how motivated I am, I need to make a rational decision or get my wife to make the rational decision that I need R&R. I need to tank myself up. I need relationships. I need my family. I need, uh, I belong to a sports club. You know, I go and have a swim. I'm, I'm going to the gym this afternoon. And I'm doing a number of things to keep my, I had a shiatsu yesterday. Yeah, I'm doing a number of things to keep myself healthy, well, and balanced. So whatever your motivation is, that doesn't obviate the need for you. So if you're a coach to somebody that's a bit over the top in going for it, because and they're really motivated because they love it, your best thing you can do is help them with their, time management, their well-being, or whatever you want to call it. So I think that is standard generic stuff. And I think it's good advice. I totally get that. The interesting aspect of technical aspect of your question, though, is this, is that, again, whenever I see somebody who's 100% motivated, of which I am one myself, is that a true result or 99% motivated? And here's what you need to look at to find out. I had one of these very recently. Well, two years ago, recent for me. When you look at the... Uh, so. The actual calculation for your percentage score is based on the scores, the satisfaction scores for the top three. There's an algorithm we have which weights the top three. It does not consider the other six motivators. So what you need to do when you look at the map is to actually look at all nine. I had a guy who was 100% motivated and he'd scored all of his, all nine motivators, 10 out of 10 satisfaction rating. How likely is that? How likely is it that any human being could be 100% satisfied on every single angle, their security, their belonging, their expertise, their creativity, aside from the fact that some of these motivators are actually in a kind of tension or conflict with each other? It's impossible. So what this person was doing was simply wanting to appear good to their boss. So that was, so technically, look at the other numbers. So if you've actually scored it 10, 10, 10 for your top three motivators, you're likely to be 100% motivated. But if all the other six have got 10, 10, 10, or 9, 10, 9, 10, 10, 10, those kind of numbers, 
you've got to ask yourself, you've got to query, is this person trying to uh, really uh, project an image rather than project the truth? Very interesting. James, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Tell me, what, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Well, I'm wrestling what with, everyone's wrestling with, Marcus. Time, time, time. I've got two things that I want to do more of. One is to support my MAPS community more effectively. And to give an example of that, in January of this year, I was in Cambridge talking to 50 mappers with uh, my great friend, Bevis Moynan, who co-wrote one of the books with me, Mapping Motivation for Coaching. And I had a fabulous time up in Cambridge talking to 50 mappers. And I was hoping to do more of it this year. COVID's intervened, of course. I've done Zoom calls and stuff. But actually, I'd like to support my mappers in a much more effective way. So that kind of activity is really important to me. The second thing is I need to have more time for my writing. I write for the Epoch Times in New York. I'm a poet. My wife's an artist. We have a big exhibition for two weeks coming up at a country house next summer. So it's actually getting time to do this. So time to support my people, time to do more creative writing and stuff that I like doing. And that is my big challenge. I interviewed a fascinating chap called Paul Mort. And he made the observation that procrastination doesn't exist. It's merely a choice. And uh, the choice is that you would prefer to watch cat videos um, on YouTube than make your <laughs> prospecting calls. Um, so my, my, my challenge back to you then is um, why are you not choosing to make more time for those other things that feed your soul? But I am one of the big things. You know, I've just mentioned to you my, my new book has come out today and it's the last, it's the fifth in the sequence for Routledge. But actually back in... In February, when I was writing it, it was the fifth in a sequence I'd originally contracted to write seven books. Right. And I realized, you know what? I've had enough. I've done enough. So I contacted Routledge back in February, March, and I said to him, look, I need to really make this the last one. I think I've, I've done enough. There's enough stuff out there. That's the legacy. I'm going to stop at five. So we rewrote the contract. So going into 2021... So having just finished this book, having just been published, if I'd had the sixth book to write, the time it takes to write these kind of books is phenomenal. I am now freed of it. So I am taking active, constructive steps without rocking the boat to actually free up massive amounts. So I'm hoping 2021 is going to be an absolutely sensational year for me, COVID permitting. Well, uh, why would COVID get in the way? Well, I meant for the physical things of seeing people. Understood. But if if you're practicing rigorous authenticity, you're saying no when you need to, you're surrendering the outcome, Mm -hmm. you're sharing your unique perspective, and you're willing to share your weaknesses, then in my experience, you free up an enormous amount of time. And one of the things that uh, I I interviewed a fascinating character, a guy called Michael Brody Waite, And he said that from his research, a leader's inability to say no typically costs them 31 hours per month. Yes. Well, I can give you another state. Warren Buffett, the world's third or fourth or fifth richest man, he once said, what's the difference between the really extremely rich and rich people? And the answer to that question is the extremely rich say no. But the thing is, you know, you've got to ask yourself this question as well. We talk about becoming productive and using time, but we need to remember that when we look at the cities around us and the towns we live in, actually, the beauty of these places is often correlated with the amount of waste ground there is. 
In other words, the parks, the this, the beaches, the other, you know, if actually every inch of a city was concreted over so that it was productive, in fact, it would be non-productive. Mm-hmm. So we need to have in our life waste areas where we waste time because it's in the wasted time that actually some of the most creative things occur. They certainly do for me. I waste lots of time, but actual fact, it enables me to become extremely productive. So, I mean, I've had a, poet, a major poetry collection out this year alongside the Routledge book, you know, which is getting all sorts of reviews, especially in America, which is doing me a lot of good. I'm writing for the Epoch Times. I'm doing all this creative stuff, but I waste a lot of time because I see myself like a city where I need to have these waste grounds where somehow the waste creates the facility for people to, to let their imaginations go. The only thing I would disagree with is your terminology. It's not waste. That differently utilized space in one's life allows you the creative freedom and uh, the space to think. And one of the things I'm always telling uh, people who come to me for help is, do you have 45 minutes to an hour a week with you, a pen, and a notepad, and no distractions? And one question, and that I got from a fabulous book called The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. If you haven't read it, it's a must read. What's his uh, name again? Keith Cunningham. Keith Cunningham. Which then brings me neatly to what books would you recommend people read other than your own, obviously? <laughs> yeah, well, now, are we talking about business or are we talking about general? Well, stuff that's inspired you to see the world differently to uh, meet your potential. They can be business. They could be Homer for all I care. Well, of course, I'll give you one classic, and that, of course, is Dante. To read The Divine Comedy by Dante is uh, an education in itself. It's the most phenomenal. It's probably the greatest poem ever written, actually. Probably even beats the great Greek classics. And um, it's just a tiny notch ahead of our own great Milton and Paradise Lost, which is my favorite English poem. But uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, get a good... Or read in Italian if you want to. Uh, Couch is a, uh, Kauki is a great uh, Italian kind of name. So read in Italian or get a wonderful translation. And actually, the, the fact, I mean, I could mention, there's been a new translation by Clive James, which I like, although it's very loose translation. But I mean, the Dorothy L. Sayers in Terzarima from 40 years ago is still a fabulous read. So that's really good. But on the subject of business, read the books on, there's loads of them out there now, but one of the primary tools that enabled me to construct motivational maps was the Enneagram, which to me is the greatest of all the personality tools. It's so different from the others. It's not four, 16, 72, it's nine. The nine types in three groups of three. It was this perception from, so there are several books on the Enneagram you can get, but get a book on the Enneagram and find out what is your type? We're all, we're fixed in this type. We're a number. We need to develop from the number that we are. So what is your number? This is an absolute revelation. I strongly recommend the Enneagram. If you want a consultant, the number one consultant who influenced me when I started out in the 90s, and I actually met him twice, was the great American, who's actually really a Canadian, but he's an American now, uh, Brian Tracy. So many of you will be familiar with his books, but he is so down to earth. His audio tapes are absolutely brilliant. I love them. And then the secondary person who is actually British is Richard Koch, who wrote those wonderful Pareto Principle books. So I'd strongly recommend them. And then there's also the Canadian Lee Poulos, who did some incredible tapes on personal development, uh, bioempowerment, EFT. Uh, the research in some of this stuff is just incredible. So Lee Poulos... Richard Koch, 
Brian Tracy. I mean, I particularly recommend Brian Tracy's book, Victory, which is about how the nine military principles, the 12 military principles, strategies of war can be used in business. I love that stuff. So a really great read. Excellent. Those are all on my book list now. So tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back to advise your idiot 23-year-old self. What advice would you give young James that you know he would have probably ignored but would have been benefited from? I can give you the advice very simply. What I'd say to young James would be, carry on, James. Carrying on, screwing up, carry on making all those mistakes. Don't do one single thing differently because it's because of every single mistake you have made that you are in the bliss that you are in today. You cannot afford not to make those mistakes because to reach the perfection of yourself today and the happiness that you feel at that internal level depended on it. And I could give you so many examples of this, but perhaps I shouldn't mention it, but I've been married for 30 years to my wife. I love my wife. She's absolutely fabulous. But you know, I was married twice before. I made two terrible mistakes in my youth in a way, but they weren't mistakes. In fact, from my first wife, I have a 45-year-old son, three granddaughters, and you know, it was a dreadful mistake, but it wasn't a mistake. It was absolutely what had to be. And if I hadn't gone through those terrible experiences, I'd never have met the wife who is my dream woman, the woman I love, the woman who is actually my life partner, my soul partner. I've met this woman because I made some absolutely terrible mistakes. Everything in the universe, has, the dropping of a leaf has a purpose. The mistakes are not mistakes. They are learning opportunities. And we have to reflect on this in order to keep moving forward. So I'm not going to change a damn thing in my life. Everything is going to be what it is. Fabulous. Great advice. James, how can people get hold of you? Well, I think rather than giving thousands of things out, the thing is one of two, I've got loads of websites actually, about five or six of them, but the main one is Motivational Maps. So www.motivationalmapsoneword.com. So motivationalmapsoneword, that is, .com. And or to email me, james at motivationalmaps.com. So that will find me. Excellent. James Sale, thank you. It's been fabulous talking to you, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. And who knows, maybe we'll we'll party and jam again. <laughs> Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you want to get hold of me, email me at marcus at laughs-last.com or contact me on LinkedIn. If you'd like to find out more about motivational maps, obviously go to the source, James, or you can contact me about that and we can chat about whether or not Motivational Maps is a good fit for what you're looking for. And if you want to uh, get onto the podcast yourself as a guest, then please email me or direct message me on LinkedIn. And please go to Apple Podcasts if you have an Apple device and scroll down below the fold and leave an honest review. A one, two, three, four, or five-star review is perfectly fine. Um, Just want honest reviews about the podcast. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.